There are so many religions in the world. How are they similar and how are they different? We need to know. The culturally correct view is to blend them all together as equally relevant and legitimate. But is that true? Prior to becoming a follower of Jesus, your host, Mike Shreve, was an avid seeker of truth, exploring many paths to spirituality. One of his passions now is to help bridge the gap so that others can discover the true light, which gives light to everyone entering the world. Now, here's Mike Shreve revealing the true light. Welcome to Revealing the True Light, episode 22. We're going to be covering some very important subject matter concerning Roman Catholicism. The focus of our attention on this episode is the veneration of Mary, the mother of Jesus, a major pillar of the Catholic faith. There are six fundamental concepts surrounding Mary that will occupy our attention, such as Mary's Immaculate Conception, her perpetual virginity, and her assumption into heaven. Are those true or false beliefs? The Catholics I know that revere Mary are very sincere, very humble before the Lord, and deeply committed to this aspect of their faith. I pray that I can share what is on my heart without offending anyone, even if we share different viewpoints on this issue. See, I was raised Catholic, and for many years, I was very fervent. I was an altar boy. I was on my way to the monastery to become a monk, to dedicate myself the rest of my life to this particular worldview. So I understand the heart of Catholicism. Catholics tend to have a deeper-than-normal respect for spiritual matters. I also love the fact that Catholics are very open to the supernatural. They believe deeply in miraculous divine intervention, and that sets them apart from some Protestant denominations that are very close-minded in that area. Now, the sum of these beliefs concerning Mary is referred to as Mariology, or the Marian dogmas of the Catholic Church. They have been affirmed through papal decrees declared to be infallible. That's when the Pope speaks ex cathedra. He speaks only at certain times on certain matters that are then declared to be irrefutable, unquestionable truth. But is this the case? This kind of focus on Mary was not celebrated in the early church. For instance, the earliest recorded prayer to Mary is dated around the year 250 AD, and Mariology has developed through the centuries since that time. In the last 500 years, around 40 apparitions or appearances of Mary in various locations have bolstered a belief in exalting her to a place of much greater prominence in the church. Some of the examples are Our Lady of Lords, Our Lady of Fatima, Our Lady of Guadalupe. Concerning the latter, over 20 million visitors a year come to that Guadalupe shrine and cathedral, and as a result of her popularity there in Mexico, she has been referred to as the Queen of Mexico and the Empress of the Americas. At many of those locations, supposed miracles have taken place resulting from Mary's intervention and intercession. For instance, 
Pope John Paul II credited Our Lady of Fatima was saving his life after he was shot. And it has been pointed out that the Virgin of Guadalupe contributed heavily to the acceptance of Catholicism by indigenous Mexicans. So many scholars and theologians argue that Mary devotion is in fact an indigenous practice dressed up as Christian by a church eager to gain followers long before the arrival of the Spanish in the 16th century in that region of the world. Tenantzin, the Aztec mother goddess, was worshipped in the Guadalupe region that is now heralded as the location of Mary's appearances. Furthermore, many evangelicals and Protestants liken the honor given to Mary as something streaming from ancient goddess worship that began with Semiramis. Though there are definitely some correlations, I believe that this is a somewhat unbalanced and unfair hypothesis because every single Roman Catholic I've ever known who holds this belief in Mary regards her as a woman of spotless character, a virgin, one who is totally dedicated to God, totally committed to a virtuous life and challenges us by her character and example to live a similar life of commitment. That's nowhere near the attributes that are assigned to the pagan goddesses from Semiramis onward. And so, yes, there may be a correlation, and yes, there are certain connecting elements, but no, this is much, much different. And so I believe in deciphering this Catholic doctrine respectfully and carefully, because I honor the fact that many Catholics are very sincere in their belief. But sincerity is not always the sign of veracity. And truth is the most important acquisition for any of us, whether we be Catholic or Protestant, whether we be a part of a certain denomination or non-denominational, truth is our focus. So there's going to be about six areas that we're delving into, and I'm only going to be able to touch a little bit on each one. Number one is honoring Mary as the mother of God. Mary's divine motherhood was formally proclaimed at the Council of Ephesus in the year 431 AD. Jesus had two natures, one divine, the other human. Mary's role as the mother of God is certainly not a reference to the divine aspect, but the human side of Jesus' nature, the one who was fully God and fully man simultaneously. This is affirmed by Scripture. In Luke chapter 1, verses 39 through 45, we have the account where Mary went to her cousin Elizabeth and spent some time at her home. And when she came into Elizabeth's presence, John the Baptist, yet to be born, leaped within Elizabeth's womb. And then Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she spoke with a loud voice prophetically, and she said these words, 
Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For indeed, as soon as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. Blessed is she who believed, for there will be a performance, a fulfillment of those things which were told her from the Lord. Now, Mary's response to Elizabeth has been called the Magnificat. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my savior, for he has regarded the lowly estate of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. Now, I do not believe that Mary said that in an egotistical way, a prideful way, or in an expectation that some kind of veneration would be given to her. It's like someone asking me, how are you doing? And I respond to them, I'm blessed and highly favored of God. That's not a boast in the flesh. David said, my soul boasts in the Lord. And so when I make a declaration of blessedness as a son of God, it's giving glory to God that he's been so merciful and gracious toward me. I believe both Catholics and Protestants can agree on this number one issue of honoring Mary as the mother of God in that sense that I just shared it. Number two is Mary's perpetual virginity. Now, this was established in the Synod of Milan in the year 451 AD. Mary supposedly, according to a later council, conceived without any detriment to her virginity, which remained inviolate even after his birth. The Vatican II Council reiterated this teaching about Mary as the everlasting virgin, by stating that Christ's birth did not diminish Mary's virginal integrity, but sanctified it. And the Catechism of the Catholic Church also maintains that Jesus Christ was Mary's only child. When the Bible talks about him having brothers and sisters, those are phrases that can mean close relations, according to them. However, let's go through some of them. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, verse 3, and the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13, verses 55 and 56, mention the four brothers of Jesus, James and Joses and Judas and Simon, the sons of Mary. The same verses also mention unnamed sisters of Jesus. Also, the Bible plainly says that Joseph and Mary had marital relations after Jesus was born. In Matthew chapter 1, verses 19 through 25, it talks about how the angel appeared to Joseph and told him not to be afraid to take Mary as his wife, for that which was conceived in her was of the Holy Spirit, and that she would bring forth a son and call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. After Joseph had that dream, that angelic visitation, the Bible said that he took Mary as his wife and did not know her until she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Well, that very statement, he did not know her until she'd brought forth her firstborn son, implies that he did have marital relations with her 
after Jesus was born. And that's exactly how other translations render it. Now, the word that is translated brothers in Luke 4.18 is Adelphos. That's where certain disciples came to Jesus and said, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. And then in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, it talks about those who had gathered in the upper room. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, with his brothers. That word is Adelphos. That's normally rendered brothers in many different instances in the New Testament. Let me give you something unrelated to Jesus. For 18 of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus walked by the Sea of Galilee and saw two brothers, Adelphos. Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Well, no one would dispute the fact that Simon and Andrew were Adelphos. Delphos, they were brothers. Another example, Luke 16, 28, the rich man who went to hell begged Father Abraham to let Lazarus go back to rise from the dead to warn his five brothers. Again, the word is Adelphos. No one would question that he was referring to his actual siblings. So if the other uses of that word referred to actual siblings, I believe that the references to Jesus having brothers using that word are also to be taken literally. Number three, let's talk about the Immaculate Conception. This is a dogma of the Roman Catholic Church, which states that the Virgin Mary was free of original sin from the moment of her conception. What is original sin? It's the concept that when a man and woman come together in marriage and a child is conceived, that there is an impartation of a sinful status to that child, a fallen state, and that the soul is in a separated state from God and contaminated by the original sin of Adam and Eve, which is passed down soulishly from one generation to the next. Psalm 51 verse 5 clearly states that David said, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. However, the doctrine of the Catholic Church is that Mary had an immaculate conception, absolutely pure, untouched by original sin. Now, this was highly controversial in the Middle Ages, but it was revived in the 19th century and was adopted as church dogma when Pope Pius IX promulgated something called the Ineffabilis Deus in 1854. The move had an overwhelming support of the church's hierarchy, although a few, including the Archbishop of Paris, warned that this idea is not stated in the New Testament and could not be deduced from it. Protestants at that time overwhelmingly rejected ineffabilis deus as an exercise in papal power and the doctrine itself without foundation in scripture, and they called on the Roman church to return to the faith of the early centuries. Number four is the assumption of Mary. 
This Marian dogma was proclaimed by Pope Pius XII on November the 1st, 1950, in an encyclical he put out. This doctrine makes a clear distinction between ascension and assumption. Jesus Christ, the Son of God and risen Lord, ascended into heaven, which was a sign of his sonship, his divine power. Mary, on the contrary, was elevated or assumed into heaven by the power and the grace of God. According to church doctrine, Mary, the mother of God, after finishing the course of her life on earth, was taken up in body and soul to heavenly glory. This dogma had no direct basis in scripture. It was nonetheless declared divinely revealed. However, it never states whether or not this assumption took place before an actual physical death where she was translated to heaven, similar to Enoch, or if it took place after her physical death. That's not really identifiable in their doctrine. Now let's go to number five, the sun-clothed woman of the book of Revelation. This is identified by most Catholic theologians as a revelation of Mary. Now, you'd have to go to Revelation 12 and read the whole chapter to really get the full benefit of the flow of thought. But it starts out with this. Now, there was a great sign that appeared in heaven. A great wonder appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of 12 stars. Then, being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns or diadems on his head. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. That's where you get the concept that a third of the angels fell with Satan. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. And she bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God, and they should feed her there 1,260 days. Then war broke out in heaven, and the devil was cast out of heaven down to earth where he made war against the remnant of the woman's seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, that's a very important part because he makes war against the remnant of the woman's seed. So who does the woman represent? Is Mary the queen of heaven? Or is that a different symbolic metaphor altogether? Well, some have conjectured that the sun-clothed woman of Revelation 12 is the church. But I believe that the sun-clothed woman of Revelation 12 is the Israel of God that spans both covenants, the old covenant and the new covenant, that all of those redeemed under the old covenant are a part of the bride of Christ, the wife of God eternally, and all of those that are redeemed under the new covenant are a part of the bride of Christ and the wife of God eternally. It's all fused together. 
into one body of believers. See, all of those that were redeemed under the old will received a special revelation when Jesus descended into the lower parts of the earth to proclaim his Messiahship to them after he died on the cross. At that point, I believe they were born again and became part of what would eternally be known as the body of Christ, the church, the bride of Christ, and the Israel of God. The word Israel, some say, can mean prince of God or one who reigns with God. And so the sun-clothed woman is representative of God's covenant people wherever you find them from the beginning to the end. And this particular passage is talking about the birth of Jesus. Israel, the wife of Yahweh, brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. And the remnant of all of those that will be born again in the new covenant era who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. They embrace and revere and respect both old covenant and new covenant doctrine blended together in one harmonious whole. I believe this is true. And if so, it is totally wrong to assign this symbol to Mary, the mother of Jesus, though Mary is to be greatly honored though Mary is to be greatly respected. She is not the co-redemptress, as it has been termed in Catholicism, where she participates to that high level of degree in church doctrine that she is the one who crushes the head of the serpent. The original prophecy was that the seed of the woman, the seed of Eve, would crush the head of the serpent. And Jesus was that messianic seed. He was the one who crushed Satan's head on Calvary. And he alone is the mediator between God and man. Now, number six is appealing to Mary in prayer. We've already covered this somewhat when I talked about the rosary. But I do want to mention very briefly that if millions of people around the earth are appealing to Mary to intercede for them in prayer, and remember, Catholics don't really, quote unquote, pray to Mary. They petition Mary to pray in their behalf. There is a difference between the two things. They do believe Mary has influence over Jesus like she did when Jesus was on the earth at the marriage feast of Cana. They came to her and said, we've run out of wine. Jesus said, woman, what have I to do with you? My hour is not yet come. And she, kind of oblivious to his rejection, told the servants, just do what he tells you to do. And he acquiesced to her desire and turned the water into wine. So their conjecture, their determination on the basis of that story is that she still has influence over the Son of God. So we have kind of an inroad into influence with him by appealing to her. But I do not believe that's biblical nor logical for this reason. If millions of people around the earth are petitioning Mary at the same time, then she would have to be omniscient to process all those different conversations and respond to them. She would have to be, in a sense, omnipresent to be in all those locations to hear all of those people calling out on her name. And only God is omniscient. Only God is omnipresent. Mary is blessed of God, and she is blessed. What an amazing woman she was. 
to be able to offer her body as the place where the Son of God could have his body formed that the Messiah might be born into this world. We cannot pull back from the fact that she was amazing in her holiness, in her righteousness, in her purity to attract the attention of heaven to that degree. But let us not make the error of accepting non-biblical doctrines or exalting Mary to a position that only Jesus has the right to fill, and that is the position of our one and only Redeemer. See, Mary was in the upper room, and in the Magnificat, she declared, my soul has rejoiced in God, my Savior. So even Mary needed a Savior. And in the upper room, she was there when the Russian mighty wind came in, and she too was born again, and she too was filled with the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues like all the rest on that notable day, the day of Pentecost. So we must realize that like all of us, she still had sin that she needed to be saved from, or she never would have said, my soul has rejoiced in God, my Savior. Thank you for joining Mike Shreve today on Revealing the True Light. And thank you for opening your mind and your heart to the truth. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, cpnshows.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss new episodes. You can explore the beliefs of many world religions more deeply by ordering Mike Shree's book titled In Search of the True Light. We also invite you to visit our website, thetruelight.net, and sign up to be part of our global internet family.